and I was already getting really disillusioned. I had this thing lined up for a, a summer program through an institute that was attached to Oxford, University of Oxford. And I um, went to one final event with Rubio, which was the first in the South debate. It's like the before people actually announce their uh, candidacy, they go to Greenville and they like shake hands and everything. Okay. And Trump showed up at that event before he had announced and he gave a speech and I actually met him there for the first time. And I saw the way that he moved that crowd and the way that they responded to him. And I turned to my friend who had gotten me involved in the Rubio campaign. And I said, this guy is going to be the next president. I'm out. Welcome to another episode of Growing Up Christian. I'm Sam. And I'm Casey. And I missed last week's intro. So I want to give a big shout out to April for... I stopped. I had like this weird gap. Uh, I was trying to think of something funny to say. It sounded like I forgot your wife's name and I definitely didn't. Uh, I was trying to think of something funny to say about your significant other, your wife, whatever. And then I realized all those jokes are never funny and I moved on from it. So instead, I just sounded like I did not remember your wife's name. Hey, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, even like introducing your your spouse is kind of a weird thing because I my don't know. All of the, is that what you did? I, you might have actually done that. I think I just said my magnificent wife or something like that, which she is, you know, trying to avoid youth pastor humor and be like, most yeah, smoking, smoking hot wife. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Lord bless her, smoking hot. Dude, that is one of the grossest things. And it, what, okay, I feel like in youth pastor school, they have to teach you that. Like, how do every, how does every youth pastor across the country come out saying the same dumb shit? Is it because they watched YouTube videos about it? Like, but it, it's, it's pervasive. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, they, they are like chameleons when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like for a minute, that was like the thing to do. And it was funny to to say something that was totally out of character about your wife, not edgy or or risky in any way. Just like nobody expected you to say your wife was hot. Yeah. And then they just do it until you want to die. Yeah, it's like because <laughs> that's the edgiest thing they can do. They can't like make sex jokes or anything like they can't be like, eh. I mean, generally, the, I mean, youth pastors and and pastors they they generally go for the most sexist thing you can say but seem to shy away from that when it comes to specifically talking about having sex they're not like this is the lady i come in and then they're uh, that's obviously too far for youth group <laughs> well youth uh, pastors it's not the sexism that's for... the problem they're not worried about sexism they're worried about saying come in front of a bunch of kids of course well, i think even the word youth pastor is sort of that type of a, a term right because i mean it's just a a polite way of saying closet alcoholic yeah. <laughs> or I never really grew up or I don't I don't want a real job. Bible uh, school seemed hard. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll hire me fresh out. Yeah, they'll hire you Poor fresh out with pastors. an undergrad. And I have a youth. I, had a, I have a friend who is a youth pastor. So uh, and his wife listens to this podcast. So if yeah, listen, ah, just joking. <laughs> I know there's a few that uh, that listen and we we love you. You're one of the good ones. Yeah, you, that's that's yeah. what I'll say. 
but it's obviously endlessly funny to make fun of you guys. <laughs> but yeah, we did the intro last week and it was a ton of fun. Uh, we looked at a book called Dateable. And if you haven't heard of it, it's... It's, it was I a disaster. What I said. It's I, I think I, I coined it well. It was like if uh, I said, you know, I kiss dating goodbye is like regular forty uh, percent alcohol, eighty proof, whatever. Then dateable is like one fifty one. Yeah, it, it's insane. Dude, if I kiss dating goodbye is um, is pausing, is pausing the movie Braveheart in that scene where it's nighttime and. They consummate their marriage and you see boobs for their life. That's I kiss dating goodbye. <laughs> and then like dateable is finding hardcore porn on the internet when you accidentally mistype a search for dudes and you end up with boobs or something. I don't know. Like it's like dateable I don't know why you're typing dudes. I'm just saying like you it's it's accidentally stumbling across hardcore porn and I kiss dating goodbye is just like, let me pause this real quick and get a glimpse. I forget. It's I feel awful. like we've talked about this before, but do you remember like when it was a thing to uh, like people would talk about how if you went to whitehouse.gov, it was like a national website, you know, for the government. If you went to whitehouse.com, it was a hardcore porn site. Was that true? Or is that just yeah. like a thing? Okay. It was true. I accidentally did it. <laughs> accidentally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to be you know, uh, a politically literate at, at 14 or whatever it was. Yeah. And you stumbled across it. Oh man. That's it's funny. Like dial up connection. Parents are over there checking the search history and they'd be like, wow, interesting. Whitehouse.com. Nothing. Nope. No issues here. Keep scrolling. Now it looks like my kid's clean. My little fella keeps an ear to a, an ear to the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Dude. So one of the things that I thought about this week, not this week, today, um, was, uh, I was at my parents' house tonight watching, uh, Patriots game kind of, my sister was in town, so I don't really pay much attention to sports, but uh, my mom's a big Patriots fan and we went there to watch the game and see my sister. And there was an advertisement for, uh, the show survivor. And cause it's still, wow. did you ever watch that show? No. That's one. Okay. I, I feel like we didn't really do a lot of reality TV at my house. I didn't watch it until probably like 12 years in. Uh, one of the times I was living at my in-laws, yeah, they they would watch it. And then Jill and I started watching it. And we would actually get sucked into it. And I didn't realize that it was a legitimately good show. I mean, it's a good it's a good premise. It's a good game. Uh, but what what I thought was it. What, one of the things I thought about when I saw that advertisement for it was I do remember there being like chatter when I was young about like games like this aren't very Christian. They're not nice because you're all voting each other off and it's encouraging lying because you have to like try to get people to vote off. So you pretend to form an alliance and then you have to like stab them in the back. And I, I remember those conversations coming up and it made me then think of um, the show that I feel like was the first show that I recall really, well, I guess it was after survivor, but Maybe that reignited the conversation about Survivor. But there's a show called The Weakest Link. Oh, yeah. That? It was like, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. And That kind of ran like like parallel to uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, but then, like, I, I think it, I don't. I really sh I should have looked up the premise of the show and started talking about it. I didn't know anything about it at the time. I just know that, like, from the ads and shit, it was like, 
they'll, they'll, I mean, duh. It's like pretty self-explanatory. The weakest link in the group, the person who's like dragging the group down is the one who drops out. And, but I remember conversations about how that being, that show Christians shouldn't watch because one, the weakest link is all about Darwinian evolution and it's, it's all about survival of the fittest and that's not Christian. And that like having a show based around someone being the weakest link, that's not how Christians should act. You shouldn't write off the, it's like, and I, it's so funny thinking back to that because it's a fucking game show. Like you're not over there saying like, uh, you know what? There shouldn't be like th- th- this coming from the fucking, uh, the, uh, every, they hate the whole concept of everybody gets a trophy, right? We grew up with that being shit all over. So not everyone gets a trophy, but it's also mean to vote people off a game. It's like, where, where's the line? It's so funny. Dude, I feel like I've never heard that perspective on it before. Like, I feel like anything, if people in my church were complaining about Survivor, it would have been because there's like women in bathing suits. That was a problem, too. I remember. <laughs> and it would censor out sometimes because in a game, maybe you'd see a boob or like a penis would drop down through the shorts. Because that game got to a point where people would just walk around in their underwear and shit, right? Like, no Dude, one's it's... trying to like cover up. Any, like, you're stuck on an island with the same people that. You, like you're legitimately not even that like some people probably were friends and you feel like the push and pull of trying to figure out who to stab in the back. But there's a million fucking dollars on the line, dude. Like I, that's what I think is cool about. Cause when I watched the show uh, for a few, there's a few years where I did watch it regularly and it's a good ass game, dude. I thought all the time I should try to get on this because you're playing for a million bucks. Everybody drops in knowing that that's what you're doing. So every time you start getting close to somebody, you think this person could betray me, but this person is also really good at all the athletic kind of game. Cause then they have games that are for people who are better at puzzles. Like there's all different types of games and you're trying to like pair up with the right people, make the connections and then also have to vote them off to, to win. And then the, the, at the end, when it's down to two people, everyone who has been voted off, votes for who win and the idea is that they should vote for whoever played the game the best but if you fucked people over every single time guess what they're not going to vote for you to win a million bucks <laughs> so there's that strategy involved with it too so i always like found that super fun but i i remember as a kid it just being talked about as like it's wrong it's like it's not real life and they, it's like they treated it like we, you know when we talked about dungeons and dragons like you get invested and then it's like it's real and it's dangerous it's like, but it's make believe, just like a lot of things Christians believe. But that's that <laughs> we can approach that from a different angle. Uh, but playing a game where everyone walks into it knowing that there's a million bucks, like what a cool concept! I love it. Yeah, those reality shows are. It, it's funny because it's like whenever you're not watching one and people are talking about it, it's so easy to be like, <laughs> "Oh, you simpletons!" Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Why don't you just watch some reality TV? Uh, but it's very compelling and it's easy to get sucked into them. And I've been sucked into some like really stupid ones. Like I got on a rock of love and a flavor of love yeah. thing for oh a little while. God. I have a flavor of love dude was that was one of those you watched because it was like a, it was a train wreck. It was, but if you watch the two of those back to back, like what it really makes you understand is how much you, you hate Brett Michaels and how much you love Flavor Flav by comparison. 
And I don't know. I you know if uh, if Flavor Flav has like denied the Holocaust or come out as anti-vax or something like that since. Like I don't know what's happened with him since. Yeah, I know you got to protect Watching yourself. It- man. <laughs> Yeah, right. Don't nobody We're lose your mind. We're not going down with him. That's for sure. Who knows what he's said or done? I mean, if he's anything like our like R. Kelly, I mean, that would suck. Oh. You're, like, you're over there being like, yeah, like R. Kelly was on the show. He was great. I'm not sure what's happened since. And I'd be like, okay, with the R. Kelly stuff, but I think Dude. flavor. I think flavor. Flavor is in. I think he's in good standing with society. He is funny on that show. You know what's the most ridiculous and and probably harmful of those types of shows that I remember. Do you remember a show called the Swan? Yes. That's actually also one. I remember Christians getting upset about, and I will side with them on that. That one, that show was insane. If, if you don't remember it, look it up online or watch a clip or something. But basically what they would do is they would, they had these, they would take like a woman and she had, you know, somebody that, you know, had like, she wasn't happy with how she looked. And, you know, in some cases they had like, you know, dis- disabilities and stuff like that, if I remember right, and stuff like that. But anyways, the premise of the show was like, hey, uh, you don't like who you are. You don't like how you look like we're going to give you every surgery. We're going to put you through like a six month boot camp and you're going to come out the other side like looking like something great and yeah. you know by their well, definition it's like if if you took a, a normal person off the street and just like chiseled them into like what you might have seen on a 2002 like sports illustrated magazine and it was terrible like yeah i remember being a kid I and watching like it, pieces just, of it no it was like it was awful to even just see it advertised the, the damage that had to have been done in that time period to some of these poor women and i mean they were you know willing participants i guess but like it's they would start off like by like people for sure yeah they would start off by doing like all of these cosmetic surgeries to them like back to back to back and then start putting them through this like rigorous weight loss routine so their faces were like all bandaged up and they were, had just gotten liposuction done like a, you uh, know a week before and yet they're on a treadmill and they're like pushing them Jesus. on this treadmill and i mean they did go through some transformations but i just remember even back then not being very privy to any of the effects of that being like this doesn't seem healthy Yeah, and I'm sure they were all. I'm sure after all that, they found true happiness. I think that was like they like. I want to see the show that like follows up with those people five years later, right? And see how they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I I, I don't think that therapy was like a very big part of the uh, the care routine. The one thing that was left out. There's a show on TLC though. (laughs) They had they had two shows. I think they were TLC because my mom had TLC on on all the time. We'd watch like fucking trading spaces and all the house sh- flipping shit. But uh, there was like a there's two makeover shows on TLC. And one was where they would like go all out like that, like the swan. It was like people who would want to have plastic surgery, stuff like that. But then there was one where they didn't do any plastic surgery. It was just like, I don't know if this is a politically correct term, but for lack of thinking of a better one, I will say frumpy, frumpy, like middle aged women would be the people who would be on the show. Now, 
what what I always even at that point in my life, what I always thought was weird about it is these women weren't signing up for it. Their families were submitting them for the show. Oh my word. <laughs> it's like really? Yes. And then they're like, they show up with the crew and shit. It's like, yay, you you extreme makeover, whatever the shit it was called. And they'd be like, okay. Like I, I'm, I'm probably misremembering some things and maybe the reactions, but then it was like they would teach them how to dress well, do makeup, cut their hair, like, and then they would present them to their family and the family would be like, oh my God, my mom looks fine now. Like it's, like, it's so weird, dude. I don't know why that that was like, these are shows that definitely would not actually make the cut in 2021. That's dude. What about, uh, what was, the, what was the one where they would go through your wardrobe and like give you new clothes and stuff. Oh, it was the 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 big tall like clean cut guy, and then the lady. She looked like she was Italian. Some of those were pretty good. They would like cut through your wardrobe and like throw things away, and <laughs> and then give you I like decent clothes. Yeah, like I have two. I, pairs I dress of like a sixteen year old. Yeah, I, I do that. When when I started my the job that I currently have, it was um an office, you know. It, up until covid and everything kind of changed i'm talking like looking good like nice khakis button ups tuck in my shirt nice shoes switching up the the dress socks whatever like i i felt good about the way i looked i just got sick of sustaining that and uh after everyone went back to work i was just like no one cared anymore no one tried the dress code disappeared everyone's just like we're just yeah i'm wearing i'm all anyone does is like wear a collar. Like I wear a collar now. So I'll wear like a, um, it's not even like super nice. I'll put on a flannel and wear ripped jeans to work. And it's just like, Oh, is this good? Cool. But it, everything changed. And it's pretty funny. Cause one of the things I was stoked about when I started working in a more professional setting, not, I don't care about it anymore, but I was like, Oh, I can actually have a legit wardrobe. Cause I thought, because I worked in a warehouse before, like I thought I would like that. I thought I would like looking nice and, putting on something nice every day. Turns out I don't. I actually hate it. It's not fun. <laughs> and I'm glad I don't do it anymore because it's too much to think about. Like I'll wear the same pair of pants five days in a row and just change my t-shirt. Like, well, that's just how pants work. Yeah. I mean, like you, you know that pants are ready to be washed when they start getting like slippery to the touch. Yes. <laughs> And they feel a little bit like humid. <laughs> got, got that jean grease. <laughs> Nobody likes this conversation right now. It's Nobody to pressure wash it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I have such a hard time with clothes because I like a lot of things that I see on other people. Yeah. I'm five, six and I'm like <laughs> 80% torso. Like, yeah. Literally, like my routine for for pants is to buy like a thirty length jean and then have April cut like four inches off. Of <laughs> You're like they don't make uh, they whatever you I don't know I'm I'm about to throw your size on yeah I was gonna make a joke and then I realized this is a bad territory to go in people aren't gonna appreciate go this for it I'm, I'm ready like, to be you don't the make butt. a thirty two twenty four length pants <laughs> it's like my my dorm room nickname was Apple Bottom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you had you had uh, you had a booty. You had a booty. Trying to get still to you got it. booty. Still hauling that thing yeah. around. That's why April's <laughs> still around, dude. S- splitting I'm seams. Telling you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever lose that, you know you have divorce on the line. 
I know. I I have to sufficiently ruin April's credit enough that she can't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going that's well. So, uh, that's so uh, 1500 BC of you. I love it. I think Chad was the one that gave me that advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's like one of Chad's best jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I'm super short and stocky and uh, I have a big butt and big thighs. And so... Oh, like you don't last have a thigh gap. No, I do not. I mean, that's where my pants wear out. I, I like... The chub rub. You you get the... Where is that at the chub rub? Is that- Dude, it's like striking a match 33,000 <laughs> times a day. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it was like, you know, you walk through the mall and you look at it like Express, you know, and they always have these like real cool suits. And I always look at it on the mannequin. I'm like, dude, this year I'm, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy myself a cool suit. I've never had one before. I'm going to go get one and it's going to be awesome. Right. So I go in to try them on like last week and every one of them either looks like I borrowed my dad's sport coat for prom or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like, look like Chris Farley at his dad's wedding and Tommy boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I look like a, I look like I'm wearing a dressy sports bra to a, like a, a <laughs> <laughs> a gala <laughs> yeah clothes are tough what not to wear yeah, is the show that i was talking about you yeah that? that's it that's it what not to wear they that's were great funny, i wonder if they're still around i doubt it i don't know what's on tlc anymore i haven't had cable in 10 years but did you did you I go through to... some like okay so everybody did it like teenage years and stuff they're like fashion uh holes that they fell into did you go any through through any like awkward transitional dress stages like after college? Oh, after college? I think I still dress the same as I do in college. <laughs> no, that's not true. In college, I wore a lot of band t-shirts. All those wore out and I never bought new ones. But uh, I mean, as far as like, I no, my, I really don't feel like my style has changed much. I remember in high school when I was like, when I decided I wanted to wear like skinny jeans though, and I thought that was cool. I, uh, I didn't know where to get them. Like they so weren't would, common like, back then. No, they weren't. Like you could go to Hot Topic and get like the ones that looked like you they were painted on and maybe had some like metal hoops and shit hanging off of them. <laughs> and that wasn't my vibe. So I would like go to Walmart and just try to find like whatever I could. I, I and I thought I was like, oh, these look cool. And they didn't. Like it was just like so transitioning from like just being a homeschooled turd who had no sense of style to finding heavy music and wanting to like look like the people on the album covers that I had. It was like that. It's kind of like when you grow your hair out, there's like that awkward stage in the middle. That was my life in high school was like that awkward stage in the middle (laughs) where you're like either cut it short or just grow it out already, man. Like you look like a child. Like, so I, that was it. I mean, I feel like that was the worst of it. Uh, And then I, I, I haven't changed. I don't, I, it's sad to say my style has not progressed that much since. I don't, there's not many places for it to progress. Like women have a lot of options, no. which I'm they sure so is many. super overwhelming. I'm kind of jealous of it, but also it is overwhelming because I like not having to ever think about it. And like my wife is like, even with work, it's like, well, there's these options. I could do this. It's like, there's too much to mix and match too much. Like, man, what should I wear today? Uh, 
polo? Yeah, <laughs> let's mix it up a little bit. We'll do a button yeah. down. And then occasionally like stores try Argyle. to do one of those weird things like like they'll do like a polo shirt with no collar. You're like, what? Yeah. No, we'll throw this away. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> has, like a couple to, of to buttons, Ross. but it was no collar. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Fa- I, fashion is definitely way more difficult for women. And it is not, I don't know if it's not fair. Maybe it's for men who love fashion. It's frustrating that they don't have the same options. I don't know. Not a fashion guy. I guess it's probably great if you want to care about that kind of stuff. If you don't care about it very much and you feel like just inconvenienced by fashion, it's probably super annoying to have lots of options, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and with the whole fast fashion market with your like your basically it's made by slaves and it gets thrown away and makes up probably a healthy percentage of our waste in this country. You're like, I'll buy this and then it lasts like nine months and you have to replace it because you spent 15 cents on it. Uh, the textile industry isn't exactly the most ethical one. So it, it feels shitty too when you have to like, when you don't have a lot of money, but you need to expand your options. You're like, I don't want to be the guy that wears the same thing every day, but I also don't want to support modern day slavery. What do I do? Just make your own clothes. Like one of those like uh crust punks. Like Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne makes his own clothes. I could have. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> Is a sewing machine uh, pounded together out of like ground up AK 47s. Yeah, maybe those would be heavy, dude. All right. Before we introduce our guest, I'm going to go ahead and uh, talk about my trip last week because I got to live my life like I was in college again. And that was weird. So I living in Massachusetts for anyone who doesn't remember, doesn't know listening since I last time talked about it. Massachusetts, I drove down to North Carolina for a show. The band Beloved got back together for a hometown show. Their last album came out in 2003. You can't really find a lot of like Christian kids, maybe not even just Christian kids, but Christian kids who came up in the scene of music that Casey and I are always talking about. Um, Everyone loved them. They were a, a big fucking deal. That was their second album, but it was like, really put them on the map, and then they just were done. They just weren't a band anymore. They stopped making music. One of the dudes, I think, might have got married. I forget the story, but they just disappeared. And some of them started a new band. I think uh, I forget how many of them it was, but they started a band called Advent, and they did stuff for a while. But all oh. the time, people... Yeah, you know that was They would play through, like, Lynchburg when we were there all the time. Yeah, I played the with time, them. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and so we would, like... But everyone who was a fan of Beloved was co- on any message board, anything that came up was like, when's Beloved having a reunion show? When's Beloved getting back together? And it was radio silence for like 12, 13 years. And then right before like the pandemic, they were scheduled to play a show. They had decided to get back together and do a hometown reunion show. Uh, they also announced that they were playing Furnace Fest, which was like this three-day festival of every band we've ever loved. And then some. Yeah. It was ridiculous. That's the worst FOMO I've had in my life is knowing that I wasn't there for that. But it was like unbelievable. But anyway, so beloved, they get back together for the show. I'm like, I can't miss it because they're very emphatic. And if so, I'm going to be fucking mad. If uh, I'll be a weird mix of like happy that they're back if they do come back and mad because they made such a big deal about the fact that they're never playing any shows again as beloved. I drove all the way down to North Carolina for it. So it's like, hit Pennsylvania, stay the night, drive the rest of the way, go to the show, drive back the next morning, stop in Pennsylvania. It was like a three-day weekend, and 
or three nights away and it was like just constant driving. I went with Jesse who was on our first fellowship Friday and uh, it was incredible. Like we've talked a good bit about uh, on this show about the, um, about that feeling you get with like with music, right. And how worship music kind of co-ops that feeling and makes you feel like you're part of this. I, not even, I don't, maybe that's the wrong way to even phrase it, that it co-ops it. If there's something out there and that does something for you, great. I'm happy. Um, but I, I've talked about remembering the first time I felt like I got the same feeling during worship music that I did at a, and being like, this is the same, this is the same feeling. And if there's something out there and there's something big and there's something holding all this together, then we're all experiencing it through, through music, uh, in some way, if we're connecting with it and we're feeling it, it's there. It's like a swell. Yeah. Like it, like it just kind of lifts you and it, with the rest of the people around you, you know, and you're, yeah. it's like you're, you're all kind of like in unison for a minute. So we're there and I'm like, it's a surreal experience. Cause I didn't know that I'd ever get to see them. And they were one of the most influential bands for me and they sounded great. And you look around and there's all these people who have not, who have, I mean, they haven't played a show in 16 or seven, probably 16, 17 years, maybe six, probably 16 years since they played a show and everyone knows all the words and everyone's singing along. And I'm like, then you start thinking about what it's like for them to see, like they, they just, they kind of disappeared and decided out of nowhere to come back and do this. And they get to look out and see all these people who are, everyone in that show was in their thirties and forties. Like there wasn't anyone there who was like a teenager or anything like that. Unless they were there with their dad because their dad made them listen to Beloved for the past 17 years. <laughs> like, we're just like, I don't know, it felt amazing and, and surreal to listen to it and, and think about what it was like for them to see people still giving that much of a fuck about what they wrote and sang about 17 years ago. And it's definitely like a, I don't know, it's, it's like a transcendent experience almost, like being there with all those people. Uh, if you do feel a connection because you're all there for the same thing and uh, and you know that they've all been waiting for that moment for at least 15 years too. And it was fucking amazing. And it was totally worth the 20 something hours I spent in a car total. Just as probably 20, I had to be over 25 hours of driving between there and back. Whew. And yeah, that's a long one. And we planned it like we were in college. It was like last on the person we were supposed to stay with that, that didn't actually end up working out on our drive down. So we had to like call around for people we knew were in the area to see if we could crash on a couch. And then we stayed with my wife's cousin the night of the show. And then on the way back, it was like, I texted my sister who was in Pennsylvania to see if we could stay with her. Like we kind of planned it as we went and we're prepared to sleep in the car. I hadn't done any shit like that forever. When you have kids, you plan everything. But my wife plans most things because I'm typical shit dad, like who doesn't know how to plan stuff ahead like that. But Casey, I think you would be the guy who planned the stuff if you had kids. You would plan the vacations and do it all. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't, it, you wouldn't sure. be shitty like me. So that's great. <laughs> but I don't know. Anyway, I don't need to keep rambling about it. I just want to talk about it because I, it was just uh, a really amazing experience. I don't know that I'll have anything similar to that for uh, quite some time. I think that's awesome. And like I have a lot of respect for people who do those sorts of things because it's so easy and we all do it. I know I've done it recently here where you look at something and you're like, man, I would really like to go to that. 
but I got to board my dogs or get my kids a babysitter or, you know, it's a long drive. I got to get a hotel. Like you just come up with all the reasons why it's inconvenient to do that thing. And you just slowly like talk yourself out of it. And then you stay home and you spend all weekend just kind of like doing your regular old crap around your house. And three weeks later, you couldn't remember a single thing that you did instead yeah. <laughs> or you could be inconvenienced and you could put in a little bit of work and time and money and stuff and go do that big thing. And like, yep, that's a that's a weekend that you'll probably remember forever. And like, yeah, the, for the rest, the, I'll be talking about this for the rest of my life. The older to an annoying get, capacity. <laughs> like, shut the fuck up about that goddamn beloved show, Sam. Jesus. The older I get, the more I start thinking about like, you know, you have such a finite time and how many days go by that are just not memorable at all? Most like how many weeks go by where you're like, nothing about this week is anything that I will remember, you know, two years from now. And so I think you got to, you know, you can't do those things all the time, but like you got to do when you have the opportunity to do stuff, you just got to go do it. Yeah. And it was totally worth it. Like, so shout out to my wife for holding down the fort with the two kids, the two dogs, the three cats and our two 18 year old. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's not like an easy thing to get away for a weekend. Uh, so was he his legend? Good dude. I never cared about, I never listened to he is legend. I don't know any oh, of their music. Man. I love uh, he is. Legend. I don't actually like their music. I found out that night. I listened to some of it on the way down. Jesse put some of it on so I could get an idea. I was like, I don't like this very much. And then I got to the show and was like, I don't really like their music, but they were amazing. Like they're great performers. They're incredible musicians. They have like this kind of like, I don't know. It's like that Southern rock kind of shit. And I'm not into it. It's like a little uh, bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'll throw in like the metalcore art, like elements to it. Like just kind of, I don't know. It just, it's not for me at all. It's great. They're great. They're incredible live. I mean, I have no shade to throw at them. Uh, I just know that their style is not something I ever am into. I feel like if you like slightly heavier music, that's not too out there. Uh, their last album, White Bat, is like a great Halloween fall type album. Yeah, they will give so, it a listen. I it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a good. But so, we can go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, you're doing that at the same time. Go for it. <laughs> so our guest this week. There's a really interesting guy named Charles McBride. And, uh, you know, we found out about Charles just because somebody had showed us a, a TikTok video of him kind of introducing himself and talking about his story. Uh, he's a guy that grew up in sort of in the evangelical conservative politics realm. And then as he got older, he advanced into more of that through like debate club and then going to college and stuff like that rubbed shoulders with a lot of prominent uh, Republican lawmakers, people like spent some time on the road with Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio is a big one. He's met Donald Trump a couple of times. Um, There's a whole list of them. But basically, this guy was he was kind of being groomed to to, you know, sort of step into the the machine of the GOP. And um, he decided that wasn't for him. And so he's got a real he's a Super smart guy outpaced us, I would say, a little bit in brain power. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> I think we talked about the age, like the age difference because he is young, like he's kind of fairly fresh out of that. Not it wasn't that long ago that he kind of like realized that, that wasn't for him. And I was like, 
how are you this much smarter than us, dude? This is like embarrassing. Like to have, we embarrassed ourselves having him on. You're we're out of our league talking to. So I mean, his experience, the people he knows, the stuff he knows, the the way he understands how our system works. Uh, he he knows a lot. He's got a lot of information stored in his brain. He's incredibly smart, uh, and it was in, and he's incredibly fair. fun to talk to. Yeah, he, he is. he's fair. He's not like a. You know, I hate everything conservative. I hate normal people who live in the middle of the country. Like he's not yep. that guy, which I, I like. I mean, yep. I I live around a lot of those people. Are good people. I don't really care to hear about all the reasons that you don't like this person and that person right. and the other. Really nice, just a fair dude. And he's also involved with something called the FarmLink Project, which is incredible. Like the concept is awesome. It's basically you know, figuring out ways to take unused produce and food and things like that from farms and get them to people who need those things. And it's a, it's a huge deal. I forget what the percentage was that he talked about of like, basically like the, the total carbon footprint of unused food. And our country has like a quarter of the world's unused food. It's, it's a crazy amount. Yeah. It was something wild like that. So it's like him and a bunch of other, you know, young geniuses working together on this project. I don't think he wasn't a founder, but he he joined up with some guys that were doing it and they did a bunch of cool things together. Just a cool guy, an interesting guy. And it's it's, you know, one of those people that you look at as a 30 something person and be like, man, what if I would have done something useful with my life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Too late yep. now. Yeah. Now we just get to talk to people who did something good with their lives. That's great. <laughs> We're like uh we're like a Bono's uh charity organization. It's like we're really focused on raising awareness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So get your awareness aroused, aroused. Get aroused with Charles McBride. <laughs> <laughs> and uh check out our first sponsor. If you haven't noticed in the past couple of weeks, we got our first sponsor ever. Yeah. Uh, Captain Cecil's coffee and it's good stuff, man. It's a good, it's great coffee. It's a great organization gives back to the community and, and to, uh, you know, these organizations that preserve lighthouses and stuff. Those are a theme. If you go to their website, um, we're going to cut to the ad here, but, uh, just can't say enough good things about Captain Cecil's and their delicious brew. Yeah, definitely. So, that being said, enjoy our conversation with Charles McBride. Sam, temperatures dropping, leaves are changing. I think we're well into the fall season. Yeah, uh, well into it. And the fall season where I live in New England is a premier destination point. Uh, it's a lot of people's favorite time of the year here. And it also happens to be my favorite time of the year. And what's better on a crisp fall morning than a great cup of coffee? If you're a coffee enthusiast, you're going to absolutely love Captain Cecil's Coffee Roasters. Captain Cecil's is a Massachusetts-based artisan roastery born out of a love for the sea and a passion for great coffee. They offer a rotating menu of carefully crafted single-source roasts and blends tailored to the season. From the light, fruitful notes of empty gold to the nutty banana bread warmth of Nobska, there's bound to be a cup of Captain Cecil's that's perfect for you. Empty Gold is honestly uh, an incredible coffee. 
Uh, I, that and another one of my favorites is 19 Miles at Sea. Uh, 19 Miles at Sea is a little on like the kind of caramel nuttier side. And then uh, Empty Gold is a bit on like the fruitier side. And I, I, I personally just don't like dark roast. I like a light to medium roast coffee. And those two are fantastic. The huge hits at my house. And we would have friends over and I'd, you know, brew up a pot of coffee and everyone raved about it. It's a big hit. I mean, they're just absolutely delicious. Nopska's definitely been the hit at my house. We absolutely love it. On top of great coffee, Captain Cecil's is committed to caring for the beautiful Northeastern shore that they love so much. 10% of all sales go to organizations like the American Lighthouse Foundation, who ensure the preservation of the historic New England coastline. So if you're ready to welcome that autumn breeze with a warm cup of Captain Cecil's, visit CaptainCecil'sCoffee.com, enter the promo code GROWINGUPCHRISTIAN at checkout to receive 10% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $50. That's CaptainCecil's.com, promo code GROWINGUPCHRISTIAN. Hey everyone, we're back with our guest Charles McBride, TikTok extraordinaire and uh, d- total dream chaser. Um, <laughs> Charles, I know the only thing I know about you is you have an interesting story uh, that pertains to growing up Christian in a way that uh, probably puts Casey and I's upbringing to shame. Uh, not that you know much about our upbringing, but it does. I'll just tell you right now, it definitely does from a 30 second TikTok video where you kind of gave your little intro. But why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us in the audience a little bit about yourself, and then we'll start picking apart the details. For sure. And I, I don't know if my pedigree is, is any better than yours. If, if you guys got all the way to Liberty University and through Liberty University, then I'm sure there's there's more unpacked trauma there than me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gratefully able to get out of it slightly earlier. But... Um, yeah, no. So I'm, I'm from South Carolina and I'm the son of a Presbyterian minister. My dad is still a, a university professor and a Presbyterian minister. And he has a church in Anderson, South Carolina. I mean, it's a great church and they have a sweet little community of folks. My parents have like hundreds of kids over to their house to feed them dinner every Sunday. And um, oh, that's cool. so I just, yeah, I grew up very, I mean, the Christianity was the, the overarching theme of my life, um, specifically traditional reformed Presbyterian Calvinism um, was kind of the, the, the backdrop to my upbringing. And uh, I continued, you know, with that kind of in, into college, I, I went to school in South Carolina and was still a strong Presbyterian, et cetera, about still about halfway through my college. And I kind of hit this uh, point where I was taking a lot of religious studies classes because there was a religious studies professor there who was highly recommended but he was a Greek Orthodox theologian. Um, and so I would say he, he kind of tore apart my Protestantism. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and then, and then I realized that like a lot of American Christianity in general um, over the next couple of years, I, I began to realize that just, just how tied up it is in this kind of um, Christian nationalist idea, this uh, Americanist fantasy um, and apocalyptic mm. fantasies regarding the role of America as some sort of Christian nation and how cl- closely conservative politics were tied up with, you know, Christ- professions of Christian faith. So I became a religious studies major because I was like, well, either this is um, the most important thing ever in my life, in fact, more than my life in eternity, uh, or it's all BS. And 
as I imagine you guys have, gonna find out the answer is <laughs> a bit more complicated than that. But um, yeah, so that's kind of Casey. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but growing up, my family was deeply con- involved in in conservative politics. I mean, I remember going to like Joe Wilson's um, campaign rallies when I was like a nine year old, and my mom would 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 trot us out, and we'd be wearing these Joe Wilson shirts and riding on the back of floats at parades and everything. So yeah, nice. I mean, like I, I don't remember a time where I wasn't involved in conservative, like grassroots politics. Um, and so yeah, that was very much the backdrop of my upbringing. I mean, I Mark Meadows was my debate coach. Um, his I debate. still I'm, nice. Yeah, that's a yeah. classic homeschool, one. I ha- homeschool debate. Yeah. Oh yeah, you were homeschool, <laughs> dude. Me too. Yeah, man. It's um, I did debate. Uh, I remember having to debate. Okay, what was uh? Let's jump off on debate for a second what were some okay. of the most memorable uh did you do like policy stuff i'm guessing i did i did team policy with my sister was it what what was was it through a particular organization we did the ncfca the national christian forensics and communication association okay i don't that yeah. doesn't sound familiar to me but i could have even done it and wouldn't remember but what, um, what league were you in oh boy i don't know i was a total failure at it i mean i had <laughs> It was like uh, probably like a local chapter of some sort, but I remember there was community like, rec league. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like rec league for debate, but you would have to like, I would get signed up. I don't, I don't know if this is universal language. I think the, uh, the, the term was round Robin or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, it, I remember having to go like put together, you know, you put together your, what do we have to defend? I don't know. I did something pertaining to oil, of course. Um, yeah. and, I couldn't defend it for shit. I mean, I spent so little time on it that it was really, really embarrassing to just get slapped around the debate floor. <laughs> but I just yeah. never put the effort into it. <laughs> the only thing I don't think that I've I ever like, mentioned it, but like uh, when, well, when I first went to Liberty, like based on academics, they offered me like a, a, the opportunity to try out for the debate team, and I thought. I thought that sounded cool. So I went to school like two weeks early, my first time at Liberty and uh, just had no idea what to expect. And I was thinking this was like presidential debate style where a person makes an argument and then another person comes in and they counter and they, you know, I didn't realize it was like the type of debate where you just like, like scream as fast as you can over top of each, you know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah, yeah. No, that's we didn't do that stuff. But that's like uh, I forget which league that was, but a lot of like like public school leagues that that is because one of the um, one of the one of the, the tactics that you can use in that style of debating is if if you are able to spew out 15 arguments and your opponent only addresses seven then you can say that, oh, well, guess what? They dropped eight of my arguments. And like that, for some reason, is is calculated into whether who wins or not. It, it, I, I don't know how people actually judge those things because they're ridiculous. There's no there's no pathos. There's no pathos. It's all logos. It's all, you know. Um, it's like the WWE of debate. Yeah, that's exactly how, <laughs> how it goes. So, yeah, that, 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 that gives me anxiety. I mean, team policy gave me anxiety, too, but. All I took away from it was uh, I still have an affection for nuclear energy because my sister and I ran a pretty airtight nuclear energy case and we just got really into it and nice. really believed into it. Um, and yeah, I just remember, I mean, I've just had weird interactions with people who were 
in that space um, for years to come. I mean, some I'm still friends with, some have had similar journeys to me, some of them went to Liberty, some of them went to go work for the Trump administration, some of them ended up, you know, like all over the place. But I got a scholarship to Liberty University for oh, ranking yeah. at the national the people. Yeah, at the national tournament in this league. So like there was very oh, wow. much a Christian nationalist connection to, you know, Liberty and Patrick Henry and that sort of stuff. So just for reference, how old are you? I'm 26. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, who is, who is your debate coach? What did you, who'd you say that was before I derailed you? Well, it was, it was more like our debate mentor. Um, Mark, Mark Meadows, he was Trump's final chief of staff. And yeah. I was, I mean, I was, it's kind of strange to me. Like this whole thing is strange because I've seen him very little in the past couple of, of years, but I, I mean, I, I was with him the morning that he won his first congressional seat. He and I really? drove to a polling station in North Carolina, just the two of us at like four o'clock in the morning, we were the first ones to show up. And I sat there and held a sign and talked to people. And I mean, at the time I was still like, hey, that was, that was probably 15, 16, you know, I was still neck deep and all this stuff and close to their family. And they're still, I mean, honestly, like they're really nice people. They're, they're really kind, nice people. Um, I just think and I'm still, I still in touch with some of them. It's just, they're they're part of this liberty thing. They're they're part of this kind of um, this conflation of American politics and Christian apocalyptic kind of fantasies. And yeah, that just ratchets up the stakes of everything in their life, um, and sometimes in really disastrous ways. Like particularly for the pandemic, like there's stuff that I can't really even talk about um, that I know about. Trump administration responses to the pandemic uh, that happened because of beliefs that God was going to take care of everything. That's unreal. There is a weird, like, that's what's hard to explain. And I feel like people who weren't, people who didn't grow up in that community or people who grew up like Christian adjacent, you know, where they weren't a part of that, like, devout, uh, hard right, conservative Christianity. Yeah, it's hard to explain to them how someone can be like someone you can know someone to be, you know, just a really kind, generous, passionate person. Yeah. Somebody that you you love in a lot of ways, but they can have such horrible ideas about certain <laughs> things and it's all justified. Yeah. You know, and and that post apocalyptic like that apocalyptic thinking plays into it a lot where it's like. Yeah. You can justify a lot of behavior by by saying, you know, what happens in this this life's a blink of an eye, and you know, all that matters is that people make the right decision on their salvation here, and you yeah. know, whatever, you know, it, it's all done in like service to this idea that God's will is whatever the 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 conservative right thinks it is yeah. for the moment. And it's also difficult to explain to people that not everybody's doing this cynically. Like, there's a lot of people, Mark Meadows included, who genuinely do think that they are the only thing standing in between, you know, Jesus and cultural Marxism <laughs> or whatever it is. Or, or yeah, like whatever, whatever the shibboleth, the new, the new monster, the new craze is that's going to be getting in the way of polite white Christian American values. Um, 
they really they do believe that they're standing in the gap there and that they're the only thing. And if you really believe that, I mean, if you believe that Democrats are, you know, demonic sex pests, like what would you not do yeah, to stop them? You can justify you know? a lot. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I think and that's where propaganda comes in. I mean, Which most is what of these people are political machine is. Absolutely. And cradle to grave. So many of these people have been exposed not only to the propaganda of right wing uh, television, talk radio, that sort of thing, but the, the specific, well inculcated propaganda of the evangelical right, um, which is its own thing. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it's got its particular brand and spin. And it's funny because when you think about, like, I mean, growing up in evangelical church, I, like Casey was just saying, like, you can, there's plenty of decent people on a personal level. You'll have, they'll, right. they'll be fine. They might be good. Granted, what I have noticed a little bit more, like, uh, I feel like I've seen a lot more people sh- do a bit more shifting in the past, like five or six years into a mode of thinking where it's not as much on the back burner as it used to be like grow. And maybe I was in it. So I missed some of it, but I, I do feel like genuinely growing up, like uh, I, I did see less of an emphasis on politics and uh, not in the home, yeah. like at home. It was very much there in like personal conversations, but like, and it, certain ideology would come out through the church, but like it wasn't happening. Like, you know, it's not like church gets out. So everyone shakes their hands and talks about what they saw on Fox news or whatever. It it was kind of more like back burner and those conversations were reserved for friendships, but it has taken more of like a public uh, out in the open kind of vibe. And that's, what's weird is like, you look at those people who were kind, nice, genuine and I've, I've seen the way it's affected them on a personal level to the point where they seem like agitated generally uh like they can't stop feeling frustrated uh, partly in part due to a constant news cycle um but you think of those people like i mean when you think of the way that you would get involved in politics and it's like trying to separate that out like i don't it, it's you look at political leaders and it's very easy to like kind of put everyone in boxes and say like, this person's a good guy. That person's a bad guy. They clearly have sinister intentions. Um, While I believe their outcomes would be very devastating. I, it just screaming and calling them bad guys is really a difficult solution. It's not helpful uh, only because it's, it's not getting to the fact that they don't think they're bad guys for um, no, no, they they're they're one hundred percent convinced of the rightness of their cause. Yeah, I just so, was poking through um, some like Comedy Central roast stuff the other night for the heck of it, and um, I, I forgot Ann Coulter was on one. And holy shit, like I can't believe the things that people said right to her face. Uh, very funny, but it's very much like, oh, you are just like there's like a demon in the corner, and we are gonna call it out for what it is. And wow. she did not look like she was having a good time at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rough night. So, but, okay. As somebody, I, cause I was in the same boat in some ways. Like I remember going, I've talked on here about going to like, uh, George W. Bush's train stop in 2000. You know, he was riding a train across the country or like following a train in his bus or something. Yeah. And uh, and holding election signs and stuff like that and doing right to life marches and things. At what point did you go from being like, uh, you know, a, a family participant to being like actively involved in it? Um, that's that's difficult to say. 
because it's it's more like I was basically a, a family participant all throughout high school. And then as soon as I got into college, I was kind of already drifting away. I just felt like they, they were unserious. And as I was starting to read, you know, great books courses and taking um, taking more history and political science courses and that sort of stuff, I started kind of shifting from a, a purely Heritage Foundation, Reagan-esque view of everything towards kind of a distributivist, slightly paleoconservative. I would I would say like I started to become more uh, fiscally liberal, but still kind of socially conservative. Um, and that extended, I think, for the first couple of years of my college. But I was definitely looking back further for like the roots of authentic conservatism, you know, reading Edmund Burke and reading Russell Kirk and doing things with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, so trying to find kind of the more uh, intellectual bedrock that around which all the, the stupid theatrics of the Republican Party was actually revolving, because I didn't want to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of reading Plato and, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And I thought that that was just what the real conservative, what real conservatism was. Um, but what, what was that to you? I want to stay on that for one second. Um, okay. Real conservatism. Cause that's something that's come up a little bit. It's something I honestly struggle to understand um, what real, con- because uh, politics uh, at a conservative level for me, uh, looking back on it often and still does frequently boil down to um, legislation of personal morality, uh, you know, growing up, like, I mean, so like 20 years ago, you're looking at like a lot of public anti-LGBTQ stances, uh, obviously abortion, um, maybe the moral foundation of society falling apart with, I don't know, porn, the internet, whatever. I mean, it's always comes down to stuff like that. Um, but I don't feel like I ever got a good grasp on what true conservatism was other than like don't spend money on social programs but i feel like that might be overly simplistic but in your quest to figure out what that was what what was it that you thought the theatrics were of the republican party and and what at that time true conservatism was well i'll caveat this by saying um i think true conservatism is now a fiction that i was chasing Um, okay but i definitely believed that it was out there somewhere like it was like the I could I could find it if I just looked hard enough and read enough, you know, Edmund Burke and 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 Russell Kirk and um, I think what I started to realize was that well, first of all, I mean, low taxes, opposition to a welfare state, that sort of stuff. Um, that that is free more market, kind of a, free market economics. That's more of kind of a neoliberal kind of um, stance. So not explicitly left or right, at least in American terms, because both the Democratic and Republican platforms have been more or less dedicated to neoliberalism for the past 40 years since Reagan, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was already, I was, I, I already knew Ayn Rand was not where it was at. Like coming into college, I was like, no, that's not. And and that's definitely in front where I was in South Carolina, there was a lot of that. It was the libertarian. Well, I don't think the government should be doing any of that, you know? So it was less of like, uh, there was some staunch, like our senator in South Carolina was a staunch libertarian um, style kind of, you know, so no government legislation of anything. 
but it's very interesting how quickly those people turned, how the Tea Party turned into the MAGA movement, which is, I guess, another It's like the boring anarchy. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But um, so I was like, well, that's not it. So it's not an economic thing. And I was looking more back, like, what are the, what are the, what are the roots of um, liberty and order? And what do these things mean in conversation with the founding fathers and the English common law tradition? And where does the Anglo-American system of values and government come from? And that was kind of what I was thinking about. And, and that, that made me kind of homeless and placeless in the modern American political spectrum. At the same time, I was involved in student government at USC, and I was very reluctantly pulled into working for a marketing firm when I was like 20. Um, that was working with the Marco Rubio campaign. And that's because okay. I had a friend who was very involved in the Republican Party, and he respected that I was kind of doing my own thing. I was on my own intellectual journey to find the Shangri-La of true conservatism. Um, and he respected that, but he was like, I really like what you're doing on student government. I want you to be involved in this because you do social media stuff and that sort of thing. And I was like, fine. Um, so I did that for a couple months. I just like followed the campaign around and do Rubio stuff. And honestly, at the, same, at the time, I was like, the Republican Party is in a shambles. It's lost its identity. And I kind of liked Rubio back then. You know, he 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 looked seemed like an alternative to a lot of the the, the direction the party was headed in. Did he? Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just said, oh, did he? I, I, that's not <laughs> something I'd be familiar with. Yeah, I'm not saying um, that like sarcastically. I really have like I don't know. I didn't know anything about Rubio until he kind of like hit the public, like real public sphere of. Yeah, like so I feel like he came across as just not. He wasn't like uh, an asshole, a Glenn Beck type character yes, that was exactly he wasn't he wasn't like mouthing off it wasn't he wasn't a talk radio conservative if that makes sense yeah he was yep. a cuban he was an immigrant you know he, he represented the future of the party it was gonna be more diverse and everything and that's back when i thought considered myself one of the good republicans you know kind of the same people who like voted for hillary in 2016 and they're like oh we need to find the authentic source of we want to go back to how it was it's like how it was was bush and reagan and they were terrible and probably worse than trump if you actually look at their effects <laughs> but they like to exist in this fiction that you know orange man is bad and orange man is the only thing that was ever wrong with the with the american right which is a complete farce but <laughs> yeah he was like anyway. the, uh, the actualization of the problems that have had existed yeah. for a while so that story ended for two reasons. First of all, I was on the campaign trail with Rubio and he kept making this joke about like how we needed to change education. And he was like, so if you major in Greek philosophy, then like you shouldn't expect to get a job out of college to like raucous applause from all of kind of the, the, the people in the crowd. And I kept being like, like, I have a minor in philosophy. Like, <laughs> I, I, I like, like, I'm interested in this. Like, what is, you know. So there was dissonance there, and I realized, like, oh, the Republican Party is in no way the party of ideas. You know, there's 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 nothing going on there, and they're not interested in finding, you know, the the ghost of true conservatism. Um, and I was already getting really disillusioned. I had this thing lined up for a, a summer program through an institute that was attached to Oxford University of Oxford, and I um, went to one final event with Rubio, which was the first in the South debate. It's like the before people actually announced their uh, candidacy they go to greenville and they like shake hands and everything okay and trump showed up at that event before he had announced and he gave a speech and i actually met him there for the first time and 
I saw the way that he moved that crowd and the way that they responded to him. And I turned to my friend who had got me involved in the Rubio campaign. And I said, this guy is going to be the next president. I'm out. And he was, and he laughed at me. He's like, he's not even a contender for the primary. Like at that point, he was laughed out of the room for, for, for leading the pack. Nobody thought he'd even get the nomination. But I just saw it. Like at that point, I was, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading Cicero, you know, and I was, re- I was, I was, I was reading the rise and fall of, of the Roman Republic. And, and I was seeing patterns. And it was funny. I, I, I told a bunch of people afterwards, I ended up switching from poli sci to history because all the poli sci kids at my school predicted the 2016 election wrong. And all the history and classics majors predicted it right because they that's, see these patterns. That's really funny. Yeah. yeah. It is funny. So I quit There's the campaign a... and fucked off to the UK for like a couple months. And when I came back, he had almost sealed the nomination. Um, so at that point, I mean, I was, I was out before, before he had even announced his presidency in terms of my official involvement with Republican politics. That's incredible. It's wild. Like I listened to uh, Dan Carlin did like a five or six part series. I fucking on the fall love of Dan Carlin, Republic. man. Uh, <laughs> finally, finally, <laughs> you just made listen to him again and again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just keep over and over again. I bought yeah. like so he's not doing common sense very much anymore. No, but I bought like blocks of the old common sense shows, and I've yeah. been like slowly working my way through all of those. It's exciting I- stuff. I like. I stopped listening to common sense because he he had this one thing after the election where he was like. He like didn't record for like four months and then he came back and he was like, I'm just really confused because all my life I've been asking for somebody to come in and break up the political machine, a political outsider who comes in and knocks everybody on their heads and holds everybody accountable. And he's like, what on earth do you do when you get everything that you've ever asked for? And it's Donald Trump. <laughs> and he literally just had this like breakdown on the common sense show where he's just like, I don't know what to do because this is what I've been asking for. And yet this is somehow the most horrific manifestation of how that could have gone. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I identified with his political waywardness because at that point I wasn't willing to accept the democratic party. Really. I was just kind of, I considered myself an enlightened centrist quote unquote. Okay. It is weird though. How like, because I listened to a series on the fall of the Roman Republic, you know, and he talked about like Marius and Sulla. And they're like rival, you know, it's almost like whipping the public into pep rallies, supporting yeah. each side. And and there's no substance behind it. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think of it either. I don't know where it goes from here other than towards the next iteration of Donald Trump, regardless yeah. of which side that comes from. It, so, it'll come from the right. I mean, the thing is, like the demagoguery. Here's the thing. People like Kevin McCarthy, uh, Mitch McConnell, they they never wanted this. But like now that they've tapped into the power of fascist politics, there's no fucking way they're going back. They realize just how effective it is and they're going to lean in. And it might not be Trump. Yeah. It'll be it'll be it'll be for, someone who I, I, I guess if, I know I, it's weird because it doesn't line up. Well, I don't know. Maybe it does line up with what their values were. They just had to have a bad mouthpiece for it. Um, I guess they got to stack the Supreme Court. They did. I guess they got really ultimately what they wanted out of it. Yeah. Uh, so that must feel pretty fucking good. 
when you're, I don't know, as old as they are and has been in politics as long as you have and you finally see things going the way that you want through, of course, the irony of a system that they've been railing against forever of, uh, yeah. fa- like like you said, fascist politics. And I mean, they that what's their like workaround for it? I'm not sure. They consider fascist politics uh, democracy working and the people voting against weird abortion laws and stuff like that. But then when it comes to voter um, voter ID laws and stuff like that, all of a sudden it's just, no, this is, we're just trying to make things fair, level the playing yeah. field a bit. And you're like, okay, interesting. So well, concern, I mean, I guess concern. they got it. They got what they wanted. It's yeah. One of the things that, that made me want to distance myself from the Republican party was realizing that they constantly sacrifice their quote-unquote principles on the altar of power politics so i, I don't know if, if 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 you've experienced this but i definitely grew up thinking the republican party was something different than what it was we were the party of limited government we were the party of like not being involved in people's lives we were yes. respectful we were patriotic we loved the constitution like we love the separation of powers and yet when you actually look at how republican politicians operate it's to the denigration of democracy, to the consolidation of power, towards tribal politics, towards by, bypassing the Constitution where possible, um, toward unfairly ad, 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 advantaging, ad, ad, oh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm bad at English, um, <laughs> themselves would, uh, at the expense uh, of, of other people. So I, I think that the primary republic the primary quality of the republican mind is the ability to live with cognitive dissonance and they do it beautifully which is why it ties in so well with evangelicalism because that requires about an equal level of cognitive dissonance yeah it's very much like lip service to a set of principles but then at the end of the day it's the ends justify the means when it comes to the 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 set of policies and ideas that they all hold in common you know, it's small government and, uh, you know, personal responsibility until it comes to passing like, you know, uh, anti-abortion laws or anti-LGBTQ and st- all of that stuff. Yeah. And I don't know. It's it's weird how like the base has uh, has really shifted in what they in what they what they profess to be the most important things to them. Yeah. It's metastasized. I mean, these 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 currents were always there, right? The racism, the homophobia, the misogyny. Those were they were always like we we could feel them, but they were they were not acknowledged publicly. The opposition and that was they more were acknowledged in the time. church. They, they were they were that, yeah sorry yeah. go ahead <laughs> my bad. Well, they were they were they were glazed over in the political sphere and acknowledged in the church. Yeah, it's like there's a switch. There was like. A, a point at which you know where the church was was openly like advocating for those things, but they weren't as open about their political aspirations. And the Republican Party itself was was pretty open about its political aspirations, but not necessarily about like its its stance on some of these like like the lengths to which it would go to enforce some of these religious ideals. And at some point, like they became open about like both. Both of them became open about both. And now like, cause I, I would, mean, everyone in my circle was conservative and outside the church, you would hear them, you know, say as much, but like 
I don't know, like, you know, our, our buddy Christian Nightmares, I don't know if you follow him, but he posts video after video after video of megachurch pastors. Like, Oh, I know that account. Openly. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the best. It's the best account. But they're openly endorse like you know talking about politics in a in the same context as like they would talk about religious morality and stuff like that 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 is new i think first for evangelicals i like that particular aspect of talking about politics in church um because i remember even growing up like everybody i knew in the church was conservative and yet there would be all these platitudes about we have no king but jesus and like well, that's not really the realm of government and like we're we have a kingdom that's not of this world. Oh my god, the amount of times I heard that. It's like we're yeah, fighting for yeah. a kingdom that's not of this world, which was their response to anything like, you know, like we should improve society somewhat. And they're like, huh, but we are of the society of heaven. You know, and it was so it was invoked in that way, but there was never endorsements of political causes or candidates from the pulpit. And I think that has shifted quite a bit. Uh, as well, yeah. I mean, in some good ways too. Like, I mean, let's be honest. There's been a lot of churches who have risen to the occasion to call out the Republican Party or Trump, etc. Um, That's true and, too. Yep, and, and have have from the very beginning um, of the Trump phenomenon, kind of been like, you know what, this is not actually what we're all about. Like, in having real reckoning and losing whole thirds of their congregation by taking. I mean, the guy that comes to mind is Douglas, uh, what's his name? Douglas, he's, he's in the Southern Baptist Convention. Douglas Sam Wilson? Yeah, I think it's Wilson. I think yeah. it's Wilson. What a nerd. And he, and he delivered like a beautiful speech at the Southern Baptist Confusion, uh, Convention. <laughs> Confusion. Um, basically about how Christianity was irreconcilable with the politics of Trump. And he, he used this brilliant Walker Percy quote. Um, which Walker Percy is a Southern author, Southern Catholic author who I'm, I like a lot. Um, and he's very popular among the circles I, I went to college with. Um, but he used this quote where Walker Percy wrote this beautiful essay called uh, Religion in the South. And it was against the backdrop of integration and uh, the Civil Rights Act. And all these congregations were doing the same thing, you know, opposing integration, all this, all the racism and everything. And he said, if the church fails this test, it will demonstrate itself to be nothing more than the pleasant Sunday lodge of white conservative men. And he's writing that Whoa. in like the 1960s. And so Douglas wow. pulls out that speech and says it to the Southern Baptist Convention. It says, we have signed a Faustian pact by, by getting in bed with Trump. And he basically got like kicked out, defamed. All these people, you know, just jumped on his back and ruined his career. Um but there are people who from the beginning have stood up against that. Yeah. Now, like as, as you're getting disillusioned with, so you say you jump ship, went to Europe after that, after the Rubio deal, um, where are you at religion in terms of your faith at that point? Had you already kind of drifted in a different direction? Were you done with it? Like, I guess, I, I guess we didn't establish from the start, but like, are, are you still, do you still have a, a, you know, a type of faith and stuff that, that you're, that you profess? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do. Uh, I mean, there's an icon of Jesus that's sitting up there on my shelf and I am in love with Jesus of Nazareth, with the God of fallen sparrows, the crucified Christ. Um, 
the God who loves prostitutes and widows and orphans. And I choose to believe that that is what God actually is. Um, I think that Jesus is a manifestation of the divine logos. And the logos manifests itself in different forms all throughout history to different cultures. Um, I think I consider myself a Christian because I, I believe in the fundamental unity of religions. And I practice the one that I inherited, uh, if that makes sense. So... It, I still it makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so like I I think that, that. I, I think in by the time I was halfway through college, I became um what's known as a perennialist. So a follower of the perennial philosophy, which is an understanding that kind of many paths up the mountain, but a single a single goal at the top. Um so it was a, a universalist style doctrine that encouraged people to continue to be members of their own specific revealed tradition. So if you were a Muslim, you should be a very devout Muslim. If you're a Christian, you should be a devout Christian. If you were a Sikh or a Buddhist, you should be a devout Sikh or Buddhist. Um, so I was firmly committed to continuing to be a Christian, but at the same time acknowledging like other people and other religions are, if not just as valid, well, certainly valid to a salvific level. Um, and then I became an absolute universalist, but still see the value in these religious traditions. Um, was that a that, tough transition for you? Like, so, I mean, you, it seems like you were deeply engrossed in these conservative politics, this evangelical culture. Um, was this kind of like a solo shift into this way of thinking? Were you bouncing your ideas off of people? Did you have a support system for it? Or what, what, what was that like? Definitely bouncing it off. Uh, I was very lucky that I, so I, when I grew up, all my friends were girls. Um, there was just like a lot of, like I would have individual guy friends, but I would have groups of girlfriends. Like I didn't have, I didn't have like groups of got of male friends to hang out with. And I got that at college in the form of a wonderful organization, which is actually the oldest organization at the university. And it's a, it's, it's kind of like a fraternity, except it's, it's guys trying to be the best guys that they can be. Uh, and having deep intellectual conversations and debate uh, with no holds barred over a variety of um, alcoholic beverages. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the space in which my intellectual exploration um, advanced. And you're talking with atheists, agnostics, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, um, conservatives, liberals, uh, Marxists, you know, so there was it was a very safe space to be asking those questions, and I would say that that, that is, group that's cool. Yeah, that group more than anything at college, besides perhaps my my mentor James Cutsinger, had the most influence on my intellectual and spiritual development. Um, and also, I will say it was not all that abrupt because if you go into the kind of the intellectual conservative tradition, the traditionalist tradition and you're going into the philosophy and the metaphysics and the religion, that's an easy bridge to something like Aldous Huxley and the perennial philosophy and an understanding of the fundamental unity of religions. Um, and, and then coming out of that is when I moved to DC and my policy, that, that started to become more liberal and I loosened up on, I mean, part of it, <laughs> I feel like I'm all over the map here. Sorry guys, but part of this no, was, I had like, six friends who came out to me as gay and I was like the first person that they came out to. So starting in like late high school, I was having, 
I was having huge doubts. Like this person is a wonderful person. They're a better Christian mm-hmm. than I am. They are more hospitable, more loving, more generous. And they are telling me that this is their quote unquote struggle um, and asking for me to sit there. And that's all I did. And I didn't judge them. I sat there and I just was with them in it. And I didn't offer opinion one way or another, you know? Um, and then I started to get more from, from that appreciation of religious the various religions, I started to lean in towards the Church of England, um, Episcopal Christianity. And, and that kind of opened me up to a slightly more radical liberation theology style um, perspective. I was reading a lot of Rowan Williams and, um, my, and, and my ideas about kind of the theology of the body were changing. And... I opened up to become LGBTQ affirming, which ended up really <laughs> coming in handy later for yeah in, interesting reasons. For people if your political career wasn't over then, it wasn't before that. It was after that, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, but I mean at that point, but I had no interest. Like at this point, I literally I still had friends who were deeply involved in this stuff, and I had no interest. Um, so I went, I moved up to DC as a liberal LGBTQ affirming person, you know, universalist. So I was fairly intellectually formed by the time I got to DC. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. the causes that I was working on involved still a lot of conservatives. And I was surrounded by conservatives 24-7. And I had to interact with them. And I had to continue to pull on connections from my conservative past. And I had I hit this real cognitive dissonance being in these these dinner parties and stuff. And and just being like, I can say the right things and sound like one of these people. And I can say the right things in Nancy Pelosi's office and sound like the right person. Um, and that was that was a struggle because I was like, mm-hmm. at what point am I willing to leave this behind? And truly, it was watching the base metastasize around Trump that really made me start cutting off individual friends who had gone that route and um, feeling like I could no longer work alongside kind of Trumpist MAGA type conservatives um and that sort of thing and then i started yeah. going definitely more progressive that's when i economically like i was like okay more in a bernie sanders aoc direction and by the time i left dc i was a, a pretty progressive social democrat um yeah that's a pretty quick trend i mean it's quick it's funny because there's a lot of parallels so I, for like for me you know as someone who was at liberty where you know your class even your required classes are based in a conservative christian cognitive dissonance like we we took a creation class where like you you were your required answers to how old the earth was like you had to answer that that it was like 10 to whatever thousand years old otherwise you would actually like that was a test grade that you and and if you answered that (laughs) it's wrong and that affects that could affect your gpa by not falling in line with that type of thinking so yeah, I mean, I mean, the even the Bible classes that I took were, you know, I there was one where it was like Jesus definitely didn't turn the water into alcoholic wine. It was, you know, and if it had alcohol, in it, it was so low that it didn't really affect anybody. So there's like that cognitive dis. It was in those classes, especially where I was like, this sounds really fucking stupid. Like as yeah. just a, I'm a a thinking twenty something year old. You're like, how are you? How are you telling? pretty much adults that this is true uh when it's clearly uh, obviously false so but anyway um that 
like so that was kind of like my kick um but then obviously reading authors there was like reading authors like shane claiborne who were uh still probably have that more uh typical not typical but i don't know there's a traditional christian theology to it but there's a level of activism and caring for people that was really appealing to me uh but it is it is weird because it was imagine that imagine christians caring for people i know it was my connection to my faith that and that and i don't want to i don't know it's it's weird because it is instantly dismissive of any christian who aligns themselves with uh those type like conservative like trumpian politics in particular uh but you know, when you say it's your your faith in what I understood about Jesus, even that I learned in some ways at Liberty, uh, but mostly through other people, because Liberty liked to put them in a box that worked well for them and their message. Uh, but you still like, but just gravitating towards that character, reading the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the basics, the basics of like what the whole thing is built around. It's like it that that's what like drew me out of it uh and that's what made me really frustrated too like when you're like when you're kind of bridging that gap right like i'm hanging out with these types of christians over here and they have more liberal politics and this is new for me and weird uh but i can fit in here but i was still like a reluctant i was still like i got anxiety over the idea of voting democrat because it had been so drilled into my brain that it was like right. a, a sin even um, yeah so there's so like i find there's some similar parallels and just the way that like you drift out of it. And for me, it was like, yeah, so much to do with, with the faith that I was gravitating to that I, I saw uh, in the people I saw expressing that faith. I'm like, Oh, it's ironic that all the people I want to be like uh, all the people who are doing things that seem like they matter, all the people that I think are resembling this character that I've said is important to me. Uh, are all have all shifted out of this and that's what kind of like yeah started dragging me out i feel like you guys both started reading books and charles went old and sam went new <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. just didn't read books casey i listened to sean hannity okay <laughs> i read i so, actually i read some new books that that were interesting on that journey so uh one of the ones that i like to recommend to people who have questions about like homosexuality or transgender, like you know, gen- gender affirming type stuff. There's this excellent scholar, um, Jennifer Wright Noost, and she writes this book that was actually assigned reading for me in one of my religious studies courses called Unprotected Texts. And it's Good her title. kind of, and she's such a nerd and I love it because like she got her doctorate just, you know, looking over all these various translations of of early scriptures and her thesis is that essentially the bible offer, offers no single definition of something that is could be considered traditional marriage mm-hmm. or a single definition of a a quote-unquote sexual holy, ethic whole, holy like, sexual ethic yeah yeah and in that it's basically a smorgasbord of things and depending on which author you emphasize they're going to endorse polygamy or celibacy or premarital sex or only postmarital sex or you know what have you um sex with prostitutes no sex with prostitutes and, and that was really sex with your slave if you can't have a kid right exactly and and that was one of the things where i was like you know what like i've never really dug into that but it it was it was interesting to be sure and at the same time that's when i was reading rowan williams and so my 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 
yeah, my ethics in that sense were getting quite liberal. And I was just having a lot more like strong Christian friends coming out as gay to me. And I was like, I want to dig into this more. Um, so yeah. And that, that, that book I found helpful, but it's very new. It was written like five years ago. Uh, you had said that that I, I, I hope I'm making the connection right. That that had come out to serve you in a, a way that you were not expecting later on. Yes, I don't necessarily super want to go into that. But I have somebody who's very close to okay. me who is trans, and that journey has helped them. I think open up to me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we don't have to get into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the same reasons that like it's not something that I'm able to really talk about all that much given all of that background. <laughs> sure. You know? So, um, so getting back into the timeline a little bit. So you, you go to Europe, what, what is it that you're doing in Europe and, and where do you go from there? Well, I, I went back and forth to Europe a couple of times. Um, this particular program was in the UK. Uh, it was run through the Ian Ramsey Institute on science and religion. And, it was just a dialogue that was being had um, over the course of a couple of weeks um, on the intersections of physics and Christianity or biology and religion, or Hinduism and cosmology, and just all these really interesting. At this point, I'd already switched over to religious studies, so I was eating this up. And I'm going to these, 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 these like lectures and listening to oxford dons and like having lunch with them and talking to them like guys who um have have, have forgotten more about all of these subjects than i can ever hope to learn and mm -hmm. some were atheists some were agnostics some were christians some were hindu you know so it's just all over the place and i just loved being in that mix um and so that kind of there were like several things that kept my interest in this alive rather than just me being like oh i should just go switch to marketing or business or whatever. I was just, I was still mainlining the history and religious studies thing. Um, so I did that over the course of two summers and traveled around more. And obviously you know, traveling around Europe, you begin to realize that many things that Americans tell you about Europe are not all that true. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> like people generally tend to be a little happier with their lives and their lot in life and everything. Um, but they have to wait so long at the doctor's office, man. Yeah. Unlike us, who we just have to ration our insulin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It took me, I had to schedule an eye exam three months out. So, I mean, it's not like I'm getting in that fast. Yeah. Yeah. It, all the contradictions, all the contradictions are easier to look at when you go to other places who are quote unquote doing it right. Um, but yeah, no, that's timeline wise. That's kind of where it was. And then went back to South Carolina over COVID and that was rough. <laughs> just. Oh Yeah. Just imagining, like, after being in D.C. for three years, and the city's just quite progressive in many ways, more so, sure, I would yeah. say, than California. California, people, everybody thinks it's progressive, but it's like a neoliberal hellscape. Um, <laughs> and the way that polite liberals here talk about things like homeless people or even conservatives, the way they talk about conservatives is disgusting. And then the conser California conservatives are the worst because they don't even have the decent, like, kind of Judeo-Christian value set that makes them want to be hospitable and generous, like theoretically towards their neighbor. They're just like yeah. pure, pure libertarian. Get out of my business. I don't want government in my life. My life is my own. My guns, you know, everything is my own. They so can they don't be anti-immigrant yeah. in their policy and then also be assholes to them to their face. Exactly. No, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And it's like the type of people who like go on Joe Rogan and just rant for three hours about how white men are getting canceled. 
Um, that's California. Casey, what do you have to say? Right, let's let's take it easy now. <laughs> what yeah. okay? What are the liberal? What's the liberal hellscape like then? Let's uh, let's equal the playing field a little bit. What makes well, it I say yeah? I mean, unbearable? I say I say neoliberal hellscape because I everybody thinks that the dichotomy is left and right here, but it really is three poles. You have a a neoliberal centrist consensus on both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Um, in that sense, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell are not all that different. When you really look at their history, you really look at their voting record, You like they agree on all the same imperialist wars. They agree that the poor should be fucked. They agree basically on most things. And then you have the left, the authentic left, which is basically everything Bernie Sanders and, and further left than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are constantly at odds as often with the centrists in the Democratic Party, like we're seeing with Joe Manchin right now, as they are with the people on the right. So how well on the spot can you explain neoliberalism? Because if I try to explain it, I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot uh, and I don't want to do that. But maybe you seem like you could do it a little bit better than me. And if you can't, we will Google it and I will read it ahead of time (laughs) when we do an intro for this episode. (laughs) You're good at words. This is this is actually kind of a meme in terms of like like I don't do you guys know what like the political compass is? You got like the quadrants. It's like authoritarian right, libertarian right, authoritarian left, authoritarian libertarian left. What anyway, okay. the joke I guess like on Reddit and, and elsewhere is that like neoliberalism is anything that like any of the quadrants don't like. They just chalk it up, they're just like, Oh, that's classic neoliberalism. But properly understood, <laughs> it's the it's the um it's a, it's a synthesis of kind of a libertarian liberalism, like classical liberalism, and then kind of a new libertarian liberalism. But its focus is on multinational institutions, central banks, um, eliminating trade barriers, free trade, open borders, you know, free immigration, that sort of stuff, globalist institutions, um, and opposition to protectionism, but also fiercely maintaining capitalism um, in a for-profit system. And the conceit is that, quote unquote, you know, according to neoliberals, <laughs> they capitalism or neoliberal policies have dragged more people out of poverty over the last 50 years than anything else in any time before history. Um, that is very suspect uh, economically and historically, that, that claim. But that's that's it's kind of the unfailing, the unshaken faith that like this very Whig theory of history, end of history, Francis Fukuyama, like we are the good guys. We won the Cold War. If we just like mm-hmm. keep sending Bill Clinton to talk at events, somehow we'll solve all the world's problems. That's neoliberalism. It's George Soros. <laughs> it's Bill Clinton. It's Joe Biden. It's Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is like the neoliberal like poster child. If, if mm-hmm. you want a, an idea of like what that person looks like at a policy, as, or as or what that those policies look like as a person, like yeah, we'll pretend to be progressive, but at the end of the day, he'll he'll launch the CIA coup to overthrow the Latin American government in the name yeah, of and it's capitalism. very capitalist <laughs> still. Yeah, uh, I only so I don't I, I can there was I only recently listened to a podcast from I don't know it's an NPR podcast called Throughline that kind of did a whole series on capitalism. Uh, and they did do an episode on neoliberalism a couple months ago that was really good and informative. And 
So I've only really understood. It's like conceptually, I get it. Uh, you know, you see it in practice and you go, I don't like that. Or, uh, <laughs> or I do like that. Yeah. A, I, uh, yeah. Or like, then you get to more leftist politics and you're like, that sounds more interesting. Cause obviously, you know, I, I understood Bernie represented leftist policy, leftist policies in a lot of ways, but the uh, vocabulary was, uh, had failed me a little bit, but anyway, it is, uh, I've only recently, I feel it's like embarrassing how, uh, I'm like so far behind on some of the terms that I only a couple months ago, I'm like, that's what neoliberalism is. Okay. Yeah. I don't like that either. It sounds like a trick. It sounds like I'm being tricked because it had the word liberal in it. And yeah, uh, no, it's not, new, but it, it is, but it is like, like most modern liberals are, are neoliberals, but I mean, kind of the daddy of neoliberalism and the mama were Reagan and Thatcher in terms of a policy perspective. But basically it emerged in the 1970s as a reaction to kind of the failure, quote unquote, of Keynesian economics. Um, and so it was kind of a return to market deregulation, deregulation mm-hmm. of going capital markets and, you know, lifting, you know, making sure corporations had could do all the things. And free trade agreements were a big things. So like NAFTA came out of that. And yep. um, yeah, so that's kind of what it was. And it's, so it's not in, in American terms, it's not really a left right thing. Both parties are basically neoliberal. And we're now putting rocket dicks into space. And that's neoliberalism, basically. That is neoliberalism. Jeff Bezos is so. neoliberalism. <laughs> I am curious. Okay, so we keep talking about like Bezos and, uh, and Musk and those guys come up a lot. What's the end game of the space thing? Because I think it's fun to pretend that this is just like some egocentric project of theirs, like who can get into space first. But I really don't believe that these guys are investing as much as they are to uh, to sell two thousand dollar space tourist seats where uh, it's an investment. what's, What's coming that that requires space travel that i mean is it do they think they're going to mine asteroids or are they going to transport uh you know environmentally hazardous waste off the off the planet like what is it that they're doing and why is this happening um there's a lot of different factors that make it attractive first of all never underestimate the ego of a billionaire like bezos wants to be the first man to fucking space dude i don't know why you can't figure that out yeah, it's obvious. Yeah. So like, don't, don't underestimate the ego aspect of that, especially for like, oh God, I mean, like Musk, Bezos, um, Branson, these guys are very egotistical. But beyond that, um, these things are huge tax write-offs. And even more than that, they get to use massive amounts of government funding. So a lot of these projects are being heavily subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer which makes them a lot more affordable than people think. They're like, well, they're like, look at these guys. They're investing all their money in order to like make us an interstellar species so we can survive in case an asteroid hits or whatever. Like, no, they're not going to do that. We're not going to mine asteroids. We're not going to colonize Mars in our lifetimes. Like Mars is, is a, is an environment that's like 50 times less hospitable than the Arctic circle. We're not going to go there. And the idea that we would, the idea that we the idea that we would give up this beautiful planet that, that 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 we would just give up on this planet on the chance that we could do this is a pipe dream but it's a very attractive pipe dream to the type of people who like to defend Elon Musk on the internet and 
a lot of this is a distraction from the ultimate failure of these people to do anything to stop climate change, anything real. Like if you really wanted to be, That's you know, saving, point. saving the future of humanity, you would be regulating large fossil fuel companies. You would be making sure that there's equitable climate policy all over the place. You would be looking into degrowth economics. You would be questioning whether GDP should be the number one indicator of a country's health and well-being and success. But no, it's much easier just to be like, well, we're going to save our space self by going to space in space penises. Like, that's a lot it's easier weird. than you, actually doing climate climate change reversal. And you'd think the amount of money they've spent on space, unless they don't get the same level of government subsidies for doing it, uh, to the, and it's that much, would would be it would be financially it would cost less to save our planet. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Uh, it, would, it, it would be an admission your... that they fucked it and they probably don't want to admit that they did that, but I don't know. I think like the, the problem is we, we're in a position where we're looking for billionaires to save us from this at all. The fact that we are in that position is no solution that a billionaire is going to have for saving the planet is going to involve them paying more taxes yeah. or being more corporately responsible. Like they're benefiting off of this and <laughs> true. they absolutely have us by the balls because we all have Amazon prime. I don't know if you do. I just outed myself as a hypocrite. I have Amazon prime. I'm sorry. I, I do too. It's okay. Okay. So <laughs> listen, there is no ethical the big, consumption under capitalism. That's a fact. So the big uh, pushback on any sort of climate change, anything whether it's investing in new technologies or regulations or whatever right now is, well, we can do all the stuff that we want. If we, if India and China don't change what they're doing, then none of it makes a difference anyways. And we fall behind the economic race. What's so how do you, how do you counteract that? Well, first of all, I mean, the calculus that it, there's be no scenario in which replacing shareholder value over the literal survival of the planet. And the idea that like it's more important to beat the continue beating India and China handily in an economic arms race than it is to like not foul up the rivers and the seas and, and melt the ice caps and cause massive deforestation is dumb. Like it's just a dumb kind of <laughs> it's just like a neoliberal is yeah, it's just like a like it's like some stupid motherfucker in Forbes is gonna write that think piece and like be really proud of himself and then go home and be like, but what about China? Um the best commentary <laughs> on this was was in the South Park episode where Man Bear Pig comes back. Yes. I'm so glad you <laughs> reference yeah that. i don't feel like anybody watches south park anymore when i bring it up i feel like people look at me like i'm 12 but it's yeah. such a great show and it hasn't gotten bad yeah and, and it, it just like perfectly skewers the type of person who's like well even if we do everything possible india and china and then like even if you talk them out of that which is fairly easy to do first of all india and china are doing a fuck ton on climate china especially is really realizing like oh my god we need to do this and they, they have the ability to pivot a lot faster than we do on this because they're not a democracy. Um, it, but but it's, it's just a red herring. People don't want to take responsibility for it. Um, and the truth is the United States is, is still the major polluter when you count up like the amount of food that we waste, which is like 
food waste in the world, and particularly in America, account is the third largest polluter in the world. Uh, per, That's third, third, yeah, third largest creator of carbon emissions behind the U.S. and China. So, like, there's a yeah. lot of things that we are still ultimately responsible for. The U.S. military is the number one polluting entity in the world. Well, okay, like, they not, it's not more than Don't you say tanks that. And <laughs> aircraft and weapons. And yeah. uh, at least, I mean, someone cleaned those up. I'm glad they got recycled. You know, we don't want to just leave them there to, to rust. So, thankfully, yeah. someone's doing their part and picking up the pieces hey, there. But. We accidentally hey, made the Taliban. One thing, like, the, one thing the I feel like... Powerful. <laughs> I feel like you two uh, uh, real liberals are glazing over something that I just want to remind the audience of. Freedom isn't free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your service. I would drop my mic, but I don't want to break it. Yeah. My, 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 uh, my support for the troop extends to not wanting them to die in foreign imperialist wars. <laughs> You, uh, I want to. So you, you start talking about food waste, and you did spend some time uh, working for an organization that I, I was looking it up a little bit. I forget what it's called, uh, so I'll just let you remind me and speak to it. But you were doing stuff with an organization that that was their goal is to help eliminate the amount of food waste, right? So I imagine that's important to yeah. you, and that you have some things to say about that. And that I'd like to go in that direction and hear what you have to say what you learned from working with them and what the kind of the goals were there. Cause I mean, those are some wild statistics. Uh, and we've all heard, we've all heard that the amount of food we waste could feed the starving populations. Like there's a lot to be said about food waste. Um, yeah. Especially when you look at the amount of work that goes into farming and raising that food to throw out a third of it seems fucking stupid. Uh, so anyway, it's not stupid. It's evil. It's criminal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's totally avoidable, um, mostly avoidable. In any industrialized economy, you're going to have a significant amount of, of waste, but there are things that we could do to make it a lot less so. Um, but the organization I worked for and still am involved with is the FarmLink Project. Um, you can find them on Instagram at FarmLink Project, same as Twitter. And then the website is farmlinkproject.org. And that is an organization that my friends uh, Will and Ben Collier and uh, James Knopf and Aiden Riley started back in um, back in April of last year during the pandemic. And I came on in June. And so it was literally just a couple guys in a truck uh, who found who were, they were looking at like headlines of food going to waste and then looking at video footage of lines, you know, a mile around a block around at food banks. So they were like, well, what if we use these problems to solve each other? It was actually, it was actually my friend's mom who came to them and was like, do something about this. Like you're on your break, you're on your spring break from, from Brown university. Like you're sitting on your ass. You're not going back to school, solve this problem, find a way to do it. So they rented a U-Haul truck, drove to a potato farm, called this potato farmer who said that he had a lot of excess potatoes that were going to go to waste. They drove it down to a food bank in Compton. And that's how the farming project started. And since then, <laughs> we have arranged the transportation of 45 million pounds of food across the United States. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so we have fed millions and millions of families, and we've worked with hundreds of food banks across this country by just using this very simple solution of making one problem in America solve another big problem in America. 
it's basically a supply chain problem. You have yeah. one fifth of Americans are food insecure and one fourth of our food goes to waste. So we repurpose that waste and we send it to the people who need it. And that's kind of the basic simple principle. Um, and it's been, been, that's been done by about a hundred college kids on spreadsheets over the past year. So, yeah, that's incredible, man. A hundred college kids in a year. I mean, especially during a pandemic year. Um, yeah. I don't know if that has had any influence or uh, on food waste or if it's kind of stayed the same. It has. I'm not sure. Okay. It's brought it. I mean, so the other thing is these problems existed, but the pandemic highlighted them so much. Like so many people were hovering right above falling through the cracks. And then the pandemic was just like, Bloop, mm-hmm. there you go. You know, you're gone. Your business is gone. Your family needs food. You're going to a food bank for the first time in your life. And you feel terrible about it because you want to be able to provide for your family. But the truth is that economic forces have dictated that you can't. Um, and you've become a willing sacrifice for corporate profits. And at the same time, things like take lettuce or milk, like people don't realize that most of the lettuce products in the country don't actually go to, to grocery stores, they go to restaurants. And so when every restaurant in the country shuts down, you suddenly have a fuck ton of lettuce on your hands. And that lettuce is just going to go to waste. Yeah, it's the same yeah. with onions, wow. potatoes. And you're talking about photos and videos of farmers plowing under hundreds of thousands of pounds of red onions and potatoes um, at the same time that like people are sitting in line for a food bank all, all, all day and going home empty handed at the end of the day. And yeah, so I mean, both of those problems are just already there and they were already bad in the U S like food insecurity is a national embarrassment for us, but people were finally starting to see headlines on them. And we jumped on that. We jumped on the infographic industrial complex bandwagon. We jumped on, we had some snazzy video content by my, my friend Owen Dubeck and we just got in front of people. We got some articles in the New York times, Washington post, Boston globe. Um, and now we have a billboard in times square. So like, if you want to believe in God, there's God. <laughs> that's incredible, man. Congratulations. I mean, good for you guys on that. I think that's super incredible. Uh, I mean, it's obvious from talking to you for the past hour plus that you are a smart guy. And that, like, for, I, I, it's cool. You know, you seem to have that entrepreneurial spirit, you, your friends, like, to be able to, like, throw yourself into something that's meaningful like that um, kind of puts and, and put your beliefs to, action to put your money where your mouth is to speak so to say is is really neat um i have actually a question about how that pertains to farmers though because we i mean obviously farming is one of the most difficult jobs in this country and and they're all struggling through the pandemic right and they have all this waste is there any sort of like like subsidy for them for getting rid of all this food i don't know if that anything came into play for them for that or if it's literally like they're getting rid of it anyway might as well just get it to a food bank. Is there? Is I can't, tax I can't believe that your mind bank? actually went there because like that is literally the pitch that we have been trying to do for the past couple of months. <laughs> Our new big thing is a tax credit program for farmers so that they can be rewarded for repurposing their waste. Like that's yeah. what we're doing. And in addition to that, we're trying to have it so that companies can buy carbon credits for us because we're basically trying to go carbon neutral as an entire operation. But yes, absolutely. What we've built out is a tax credit program where we help farmers find tax credits for getting rid of their waste. So it's beneficial for them. 
sometimes most of our waste is donated. Sometimes we pay the farmers for it, like pennies on the dollar, because otherwise it's just going to go under. But they're happy to get mm-hmm. whatever, and then we pay the wages of the truckers who transport it. But yes, like part of the big problem with the waste is that a lot of it comes from the fact that that farming is so subsidized in this country that like people are people are sub people are are paid to grow crops that nobody's eating. Um, it's but, incredible. I mean, they and they work so long and all yeah. year it's like the amount of effort that goes into farming for them to be like yeah i mean even when i hear people talk about the deal they got on ears of corn at the fucking grocery store it's like yeah, yeah. we just got 1000 years of corn for about five bucks and it's like all i think about is how much fucking work went into that i know i know it, it, it's it, weird man because it's like your product is so temporary you know it's just depending on and, and that's why when you hit a huge supply chain snag, like with COVID, it's like, yeah. all right, well, every truck that was going to be coming up from Nicaragua to transport my tomatoes down to El Salvador is now not able to cross the border. So I'm going to plow under 500,000 pounds of tomatoes, you know, and it's just this insane calculus. Like when you really start digging into this, the numbers are just frightening and insane. And what we are doing is a tiny 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 drop in the ocean but it's something nobody was doing before and so somebody now is and we're hoping other people will get into the space yeah uh and that's something how how is it funded donations can like just you you kind of donations, donations try to get people to support yeah donations and corporate partnerships if you want to donate to farm link i mean i do recommend it um so the other thing is it's very limited staff like we it's a it's all volunteer basically except for a skeleton crew who runs it um so for a while, I don't know if this is necessarily true. Again, I, 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 I'm no longer directly affiliated with the organization. Um, but while I was there, basically 100% of people's donations were going straight towards paying the wages of the farmers and the truckers um, to, to salvage this produce. So donations do go a long way there. And you can head over to farmlinkproject.org if you want to help the good work that, that our people are doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... Again, like like I said, what we are doing is such a tiny drop in the bucket of, of what what has to be done on this issue. Um, but I think it encourages people to see a bunch of young kids out here, like you know, sitting on Zoom all day, <laughs> talking to farmers and rescuing potatoes. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I, I love hearing that. That's that's really cool. So curious, you said that the TikTok deal was a, a relatively recent thing, but you know, like that's how we came across you. Uh, I think we saw your introduction video where you kind of spelled out in a nutshell your history and, you know, the your roots and stuff like that. Um, I jumped on there today and watched a bunch of your videos. You're getting a lot of attention on TikTok. So what has that been like? How did it happen? And what has been... I don't know. I'm just curious as to what the response has been talking about sensitive subjects and, and getting that much uh, of an influx of attention about it, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to be honest, man. TikTok is the most mysterious thing to me. I do not understand it. I do not understand why I, of all people, became popular on it. I was basically stagnant on Instagram for like four years after I stopped doing like preppy modeling stuff. And <laughs> like, I have no idea why people come to my TikTok. I, I'm not, it's not false humility. It is genuine amazement at how quickly that has happened um i started that account in like may 
Oh shit! No way. Yeah. <laughs> and then reason. it took about two and a half months to get to ninety thousand followers. And then my grandma passed away and I kind of stepped away from social, all social media for a little while. And so then it took me kind of two more months to kind of get the next 10 K. I think I'm sitting at like a hundred thousand now, a little over. Um, and to be honest, there's, there's not a lot of forethought or structure that I put into this. I talk about anything, especially if you look recently, it's just like random memes and stuff. It, 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 I, I've tried to combine my interests in discernible ways sometimes. Um, but mostly it's just going on there and being like, this is me. And it feels so much more authentic than Instagram. My Instagram's like so highly cultivated. <laughs> and, and my TikTok <laughs> is like so much more raw. And it's just stupid stuff. Um, but I think it resonates with some people, especially people who had backgrounds like ours. You, I saw one of your videos and, uh, I don't know if, I think you might've been in a car and you had a Westie on your lap. Do you have a Westie? I do have a Westie. Yeah. Fuck yes, dude. I have, a, <laughs> I just got, so I, I am obsessed with Westies. Oh, I, my first dog best. was a Westie. Yeah. Mine too. We lost, we lost her back in October or early due to like cancer, but we instantly put ourselves on a waiting list for another one. So I have like wow. a 12 week old Westie right now. And oh my like God. They're so cute. It's so cute. My life, dude. Yeah. When uh, they're young too. And they're so sweet. Like I, I didn't realize how sweet they were. Cause our first Westie was a bitch. Like he was just <laughs> a one person dog. He was just like, if you pet him for too long, he'd growl at you. He was just kind of stalk around all over the place. Like we loved him. He was our first dog. We had him for 11 years, but he passed away. Ooh, 20 like early 2019 okay and then we got my parents got a german shepherd and he was like not well trained and he was just really rowdy and it was just very different for their lifestyle and they so they ended up giving him to somebody else um and then somebody in their church actually is a westie breeder and convinced oh, no them way. like listen we know your last westie was kind of a bitch but we promise they're they're usually a lot nicer um and so they gave us sky who was a breeder westie and she's like 12 years old now um so she's an old lady but she's basically she's no longer breeding and they wanted to send her to like a good home and she's literally the sweetest dog nice. i know everybody says that about their dog but she will find anybody and like she'll just roll over and you know let you pet her and she'll just sit there she'll sit there on your lap staring up into your eyes i hold her like yep. this you know like virgin mary with with child and, <laughs> and she just like looks up at me and I just like pet her little nose and like smooth her cheeks. And she's just, oh man, like my, my, my quarantine would have been so much harder without her. Like my ritual, just like taking her out during the day, harvesting tomatoes from our little garden and just like sitting on the porch <laughs> with her. Fantastic dog. They're amazing. Mine was yeah. so sweet. Like we got her, we got lucky, dude. We got her on like my wife and I, this is when we were in, in at liberty still we like she wanted a dog i had never had a dog didn't grow up with dogs didn't give a shit and she was all about finding one and we found a couple getting rid of theirs they only had it for a few weeks still a puppy on craigslist for three hundred dollars oh my god like with a month's supply of like food a pen the crate like every fucking thing you can think of and I was just like, I'm permanently forever a Westie person because <laughs> we ended up getting another puppy during COVID, like a lot of people. Um, but that is when ours ended up. 
passing and we weren't really expecting that it was a bit sudden. And uh, we, like I said, we instantly got on their waiting list. And so now we have like two basic, basically puppies. My, the dog we got is like about a year old now. He's like a lab boxer. Oh, nice. and, but having this little tiny Westie, like they just play together all the time. And she like, they're kind of like assholes because they're like, they're super stubborn when they're pups. Right. They just yeah. like, they're funny, man. I absolutely love them. I am for the rest of my life. Like, we're already like, all right, every like five years, we need to like get on another like waiting list to get one. So that way it's like, <laughs> we're never without again. Just They're gonna have great. a Westie farm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had to, I couldn't not. I'm glad, dude, Casey, you bring it up, like bring it back to TikTok. I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need to make a mental note to ask him about a Westie when he's on the podcast. <laughs> and I almost forgot. And I'm so glad we had this moment before yeah. we ended it. <laughs> so before we break, um, we talked a lot about politics. Uh, it's, you know, I feel like none of us are real aligned with any particular political party or anything. Who are some, are there some bright spots in whatever party? Like, who do you hear talking and see and say, like, that's a genuine person. Like, I feel like this person is going to do something good. Is there anybody that you see as like, this is a person that I can get behind? Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Amanda Gorman, who was the poet laureate who, who did the poem at the inauguration. She's kind of being groomed by the, the corporate democratic establishment to be their next shining star. But I think that she's got a good head on her shoulders. I love Stacey Abrams. She is also being groomed by the corporate establishment to kind of graft her into the like, we've solved racism. Now let us like continue taking donations from pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> I, I worry about that with Stacy, um, but I really, I mean, I, I like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I love her energy. She's so eloquent sometimes. And the, my favorite thing about her is just she just lives rent free in the heads of every conservative, and it just absolutely drives them crazy. And it's, it's so good, so satisfying to watch. Um, so I love, I love her. Uh, the tax the rich thing at the at the Met Gala was was pretty dumb. That um, was tone deaf. Like I think it, I think it. There was probably some good research. Like I'm sure searches for tax the rich spiked after that, but it the optics were bad. If she had gone with an eat the rich dress, that would have been a lot more based. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that she's still. I think she's got a, a promising career ahead of her, and I appreciate that she seems resistant to yeah bending on kind of corporate pressure to be another Nancy Pelosi. Um, Bernie Sanders, OG, you know, like love him. Just his consistency is very admirable. Um, and he has made compromises, yes, but he has made compromises that have really advanced the cause of the left in this country in the post, in the post like Fukuyama end of history space. He's, he's one of the, f- the first people to kind of bring back, re-energize the left, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. Robert Reich, the former labor secretary, is someone who I really admire. He's really leaned into using new media to educate um, about like social democracy, you know, welfare state, taxes on the rich, that sort of stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. His channel on YouTube is Inequality Media. He's also on TikTok. He does great on TikTok, especially since he's like 80. (laughs) Um, That's pretty great because I'm resistant to getting to TikTok. And I'm 33, <laughs> so fuck me, go him. Perfect. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, he's he's doing great. I'm trying to think of who else I like. I don't like a lot of people in politics, I have to admit. It's tough to. They're not very endearing people either. And I just think like I've shifted I've shifted in a more kind of anarchist direction where I think that community organizing on a local level and taking care of people's needs in like their immediate needs as close around you as you can and organizing on a city basis and a state basis. Um is sometimes a better use of your efforts than like, sure. you know, kind of the horse betting on some, which politician's going to save us. Um, Definitely. I think that's a great point to make. Yeah. So, but the main thing, I mean, the, the principle of people on the left is they, our guiding principle should would be that we're, we're not in love with politicians and no one politician is going to be our hero. No one politician is going to save us. We have to save us. It's all of us together. Um, and no single politician is going to, to be a messianic figure that delivers us from the oppression of the, the, uh, the owning class. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there you go. You heard the man, uh, follow Robert Reich, AOC, Mike Pompeo on all social (laughs) media. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mike. Where, so where can people follow you? Oh God. Um, you can find me on, I'm pretty dormant on Twitter, but my Twitter is McBride Campbell. Um, my Instagram is Charles McBride. So is my TikTok spelled with a Y, not an I. And, uh, yeah. So until I start an OnlyFans, those would be the, the channels where you can find me. Perfect. We've been talking I about starting say, OnlyFans dude. too. I don't know. Mm. Maybe we can get a bright future out of us. Yeah. As yeah. an industry insider, I can tell you where you went wrong with the modelings. You got to go lewd. Yeah. You gotta go lewd, man. I just, yeah, I think gay TikTok <laughs> always, always mourns over the fact that I'm straight. They, they really, they keep reminding me. And I'm just like, I could make so much money. <laughs> I lie awake. Hey, I love you at home alone, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a dark time, you know, home invasion, early 90s. <laughs> I would pay to watch you hit people with paint cans. I know that. There we go. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a funny TikTok series of me reenacting scenes from that. I should consider that. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> That'd be incredible. Well, it's uh, it's been great to talk to you, Charles. I'm I'm glad we could set this up. Uh, you're an interesting guy for sure. I'm I'm definitely <laughs> interested to see what you do from here. Okay, it was great. Yeah, this it was great talking fun. to you guys. I, yeah, yeah, I. You you'll do stuff. I mean, you got that entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and you have good causes that you, you know, you're you're on, you're doing good stuff. Uh, it's cool. I, I, it's nice to hear people putting their efforts and time, and you know, without without the reward that you know our society, sh- like so much of it is like you're worth what you get paid for something. And, and, and I know there's like that like sexiness to volunteer or whatever, but for you to put that much effort into something that is makes that much of a difference um without the reward that our capitalist society says you deserve for it is uh, it's admirable so i'm glad i got to hear about that and that you got to share what you've been doing on that front with our audience particularly i appreciate that man it's very kind of you to say yeah all right everybody well thanks for listening and we will see you next time